Broadcasting live from Atlanta, Georgia, it's time for Top Docs Radio. Brought to you by Women's Telehealth, whose mission is to bring scarce, high-risk maternal fetal medicine services to patients and referring obstetricians in their own community, urban or rural. Visit womenstelehealth.com for more information. Now, here are your hosts, Tanya Mack and C.W. Hall. Good morning, everyone. It is C.W. Hall, and I'm joined in the studio with our co-host and CEO of Women's Telehealth, Tanya Mack. Good morning. Happy Monday, Tuesday. That's right. And I'm I'm really interested to get into this conversation. I'm, I'm, I, I think it's one that affects many, many people out there. We and were talking you know, before we went on the air about how it has affected my life. That's right. Yep. The topic today is ADHD, or Attention Deficit Hyperactivity Disorder. So I think that will apply to many of our listeners, hopefully. My my child is one of those as well, just uh, as you were describing, that she was one that was told uh, there's a measure of ADHD there, um, and we went through the process of do we do, we do medicines or not? Right. And- we're going to learn a lot about that today. Well, let me introduce the topic a little bit and tell you about our guest and introduce him as well. So ADHD is now the most prevalent psychiatric illness of young people in America, and it affects approximately 11% of children between the ages of 4 and 17. So this health disorder is pretty much characterized by inattention, impulsivity, and hyperactivity. And the cause is unknown, but it's suspected to be a link between genetic and environmental factors, and we'll hear more about that. For some reason, seems to affect more males almost three times more than females. So it's interesting. I had a son. You had a daughter. Mm-hmm. Um, and complicating this problem in our United States healthcare system, of course, is a lack of access, especially in rural areas, a shortage of child psychiatrists and counselors. But um, we have a person on with us today that I met recently on a speaking engagement uh, down in Jekyll Island, learned about his company a little bit more. On the on the uh, studio with us today, we have Dr. Tarek Shaheen. Dr. Shaheen, welcome. Thank you. I appreciate you all having me. Yes. So let me tell you a little bit about Dr. Shaheen and his company, Iris Telehealth. So Dr. Shaheen is a board-certified psychiatrist specializing in child psychiatry. He received his training and did a fellowship at the University of Virginia And he is CEO and founder and um, also a provider with Iris Telehealth. And Iris is very interesting. We're both telemedicine providers. That's how we met each other. Um, However, they're a national leader in providing psychiatric services by telemedicine. And they have a nationwide network of mid-level providers, counselors, and physicians. And they work in many, many settings to provide services in an unusual way, and he'll tell us a little bit about that. So, Dr. Shaheen, welcome. Thanks again for having me. Okay, so let's start at the very beginning. You tell us a little bit more about ADHD, and I know in my generation it was ADD. So maybe you can clarify some of the language for us and kind of talk a little bit about the definition of that these days. Sure, yeah, I'd be happy to do that. So as you mentioned in the intro, ADHD uh, stands for Attention Deficit Hyperactivity Disorder. Um, ADD, the, the previous term, stands for Attention Deficit Disorder. And in psychiatry, it's an ever-evolving field. And so we see, um, as we learn more about the disorder, we realize that likely kids and adults who had these clusters of symptoms um, often had both hyperactivity as well as inattention. Um, and so now the the 
diagnosis of ADHD, and there's many subtypes within that, and I'll, I'll kind of go into it. I know that you touched in the beginning about the three cardinal symptoms of ADHD, which are inattention, impulsivity, and hyperactivity. Um, the one that often gets um, underplayed, and I might speak a little bit more, is the impulsivity aspect of it. That's actually what often gets kids in trouble and what, what brings them into treatment. Um, that being said, now we have different subtypes of the disorder, um, whether it's, you know, predominantly inattentive, predominantly hyperactive, or combined. So uh, it's really just a continuation as we learn more about what ADHD is um, and how we classify it. That oftentimes uh, nomenclature changes, but in its core, the diagnosis really remains the same between the two. Okay. And I'm wondering who typically discovers the problem. Like in my particular case, it was the teachers that brought this to our attention because they were actually with my son more hours in a day than I was. So for me. I, I don't know if pediatricians do or teachers do, or what do you find in the field? Yeah, so that's a great question. I think that the two most common people who will, will notice this first are going to be either the parents or the teachers. And just as you said, it's generally the folks that have the most interaction with the child. Mm-hmm. So oftentimes for the, for the first diagnosis, it will be a teacher. Um, and oftentimes then parents become savvy about it. And if they have another child who potentially has symptoms of ADHD, they're able to to see, you know, hey, I'm noticing some things here that I've noticed in my older child. And then oftentimes, you know, as parents become more aware, um, they can, can often notice a difference, you know. And when we go back in retrospect, it is often teachers who notice the diagnosis. But then as parents kind of look back, they, they do see, even in very early age, I mean, and I mean even sometimes as, as early as, as one or two years old, just in the, the way that the child was different in, in terms of breastfeeding or taking the bottle, there were noticeable differences that, that they could pick up. But, you know, in and of themselves, didn't really bring anything to attention. And it really got to be in the point when they were interacting with many child age, you know, similar age peers, that their behaviors um, and their attention was markedly different than it, that it comes to note um, by a teacher. But, uh, you know, teachers and, and parents, um, are going to by far cover the bulk of who's noticing this and bringing it to. So when is the most common age that they would be brought into a healthcare provider, would you guess? Like right when they start school or preschool or? You know, I, I think that part of it depends on the severity of ADHD. And uh, a lot of that has to do with the demands that are also being put on the child. So very severe ADHD is usually being brought to attention pretty much as soon as the kid is getting into a preschool type of setting. Mm-hmm. You know, oftentimes the story is that they've been kicked out of a couple of daycares. Mm-hmm. Um, and now in pre-K, the teachers are saying, hey, you know what, Mr. or Mrs. Carter, your, your child is having some difficulties with this. It's making it difficult in the class. We'll learn the things that are necessary, and it might be worth having this formally evaluated. Mm-hmm. So, it, you know, it, oftentimes that's the first stage. But for more kind of mild cases of ADHD, it often will not sort of become an issue until high school or late middle school wow. when the demands of schooling really overwhelm the child's ability to focus. Um, so as, as you get older, school gets tougher generally. And so sometimes that kind of pushes you know, the needle that, that broke the camel's back, so to speak. The kid could manage um, previously, but at some point the academic demand kind of um, overwhelms their ability to, to stay focused and keep up with their schoolwork. Okay. And, you know, once they're brought into the provider, either by the teacher or the parent or, you know, the pediatrician or whatever, how is the diagnosis actually made? Is there testing, a battery of tests or observational or combination of things? Yeah, that's a great question. 
you know, this might serve as a, a little bit of a segue to just talk about how psychiatry is in some ways different um, than other fields of medicine. So, um, again, this is, uh, of course, painfully obvious to those in the field, but in mental health, there's no blood test um, right. or very clear black or white way of making a diagnosis. So, these diagnoses really are constructions and, and, I, and I, I human constructions. And I, and I say that not to um, take away the, the value of these diagnoses, but they're really socially constructed diagnoses. And they were constructed so that we as physicians and as researchers could both identify people um, who may be at risk of dealing with certain you know, issues or, or uh, d- difficulties in their lives, and then being able to um, study how people might respond. We have to create these constructions and create criteria and guidelines to say, yes, this is ADHD and no, this is not. Um, but starting with this idea of it's not black or white. And so, you know, when we look at ADHD, it, it really is very practically when there is an individual who is having significant difficulties with attention, hyperactivity, and impulsivity, and it's significantly impacting their lives. And so the way that we make that diagnosis is really by asking questions and learning around those three subject domains. So the primary way that ADHD is diagnosed is by very thorough history taking, which is how most of medicine works. It's sort of understanding that history and the behaviors and how they've progressed over time. So, you know, we we have um, diagnostic criteria, which cover a few bases. One is length of time. So these symptoms have to have existed over several months. You know, you just can't have a bad week and have ADHD. Um, they have to exist in, in multiple settings. So, you know, for example, if a kid is just struggling at home, but is doing great at school, you know, it really raises the flag to say, well, let's look at some of these environmental things that, that are potentially different between the two. This is uh, likely not just a, a plain and clear ADHD diagnosis. Um, and three is you need to have a significant number of the criteria. So you can't just have one little inattentive quirk and otherwise you're doing okay. And I I would say that the biggest, uh, and I I would say number four, which is the biggest, is that it clearly has to have an impact, a a negative impact on the child or adults functioning, whether that be in a social standpoint, um, a personal standpoint, or sort of a a work standpoint and, and work for for kids is school. And so those, those are, we take all of those uh, pieces of information. We get the information from the school, the teachers, the parents, oftentimes the kids that they're old enough to like meaning, meaningfully contribute. And based on gathering all of that information, that the symptoms are significant enough and present in enough uh, places and have gone on long enough and are impairing enough. Um, and of course, there's no other reasons why this would be going on, whether it's some type of, uh, you know, biological issue or uh, hyperthyroid issue or anything else or that could potentially confuse the picture, that's how we would make the diagnosis of ADHD. So there is, there is more fancy formal testing, but the lion's share of ADHD is diagnosed with a clinical interview. In a clinical interview. So is that observational with the child as well? Because it sounds like in history taking, it's the parents and the teachers and a lot of people around the child talking. Is there some kind of observational component? Of the be direct yes, behavior uh, of the child? Okay. Absolutely. And there's kind of a joke in child psychiatry, right? You can make the diagnosis of ADHD if the kid's uh, legs go over their head two <laughs> times in the interview. Uh, so, right, there's, there's clearly, like you know, we, we, we have our own gut feeling of how the kid is interacting in the room and we're observing, documenting that. 
Okay, very good. I love that. Hey, listen, I was wondering, um, once a diagnosis is made or in the process of getting, because it sounds like not just a one-time visit, like there's a, a lot of information sharing and things kind of going on to get to this point. Typically, and you may not know the answer, but I'm curious, is a referral from the pediatrician required for insurance coverage? No. Okay. And, All right. And so, so patients can self-refer, the parents can self-refer and get to the right care and get plugged in. Correct. Okay. Well, that, that makes it a little bit easier. Let's talk a little bit about the cause of ADHD. Do we know what the cause is or what is the thinking? Yeah, great question. I, I think, like most of us in the field, we wish we could get closer to the real cause of these you know, conditions. We, we know a number of things, right? We know that there are environmental factors that can influence ADHD. We know that there are genetic factors that can influence ADHD. You know, a common environmental factor that's actually got good data behind it is women who smoke during pregnancy. Um, their children have a higher chance of developing ADHD. Of course, genetics okay. plays a factor. We know that if parents or siblings have ADHD, that child is much more likely to have ADHD. There's a lot of ideas around the neuroscience of ADHD. Um, I'm very interested in it, but I, I think that at this point, we don't, we don't have a, a very clear, perfect understanding of it. Um, but if I, I could just take two minutes to talk about ADHD, I think in a way that would, would resonate with, with parents and people who um, have been diagnosed with ADHD. Again, this is, this is a, a social construct, right? We, we recognize that there's a number of people in today's society who struggle with inattention and hyperactivity. And so we've, we've labeled it as, um, you know, a, a mental health illness. And that it is. But I also want to just sort of think back to how human beings were sort of designed in, in a sense. So, right, today's society is quite different than society was 1,000, 5,000, 10,000 years ago. And the demands that are being put on kids are very different than the pressures that were placed on us as we evolved. And so, you know, we are now taking every single child, you know, and, and saying, hey, you've got to sit in the classroom for eight hours a day and you can't move and you can't get up and you can't look around and you've got to look at this book and read for eight hours a day. And, and that's not really what we were designed for. And I, I think that, you know, as we create these, these social situations, we have to understand that, that some people are not going to excel in that. And I, I think that a big part of, of people with ADHD being successful is creating an environment where their symptoms are actually a strength to them, right? And so kind of going back in the day, some of the thought is that it likely would be folks who had more inattention um, would actually be excellent hunters and they'd actually be great at keeping guard because it's the kid with ADHD who notices a fly on the wall. And they're the first to perceive things. And so, you know, we call it an illness, but I, I think ADHD in a number of ways is different than an illness like diabetes in a sense that it, it really is just a different way of perceiving and sensing your environment. But when you're in a school setting and you've got to sit down for eight hours a day and read a book, it's very difficult for them to do. Yeah, I appreciate that. You know, I'll tell you a funny story. When the Olympics were here in Atlanta, my son was young and the teacher stepped out in kindergarten. And by the time she got back, um, he had shown the the class how to make Olympic torches and they marched right out of the classroom and had a little parade and she was in so upset 
And so I understand, you know, like he probably shouldn't have done that, but gee, what a, what a great leader. I mean, I don't, so I, I think you're making the, a fantastic point about it. We think of it as an illness, but there's really two sides to the coin and consider the context in which we see some of these behaviors. So I really appreciate that. Um, yeah, so another a question I have is, is it associated with other disorders? We've talked about some of the predispositions like genetic and environmental, but, you know, I hear a lot about these kids having learning disabilities, sleep disorders. Um, what else as parents, you know, are kind of associated with that or should we look for? Yeah, great question. So, you know, ADHD, um, like most of our diagnoses, tends to cluster with other diagnoses. And, and the most common is actually behavioral problems. So, so the conduct types of problems in a kid, which I guess is unsurprising um, given, you know, just the nature of, of ADHD um, kind of thinking of Dennis Menace as the prototypical kind of 80s ADHD kid, kind of impulsive, getting into trouble, right? Dennis Menace wasn't, wasn't a bad kid. He just acted without thinking, which is what impulsivity is. And so it leads to behavioral problems. So that would be the most common. And then as you said, learning um, difficulties, whether that's a reading disorder or a math, mathematics or processing disorder um, are also common. Substance abuse disorders, again, likely go hand in hand with the impulsivity um, aspect of it. Um, and sleep is actually a really key difference that we see in kids with ADHD. The most common thing that parents will say is that Brian just sleeps differently. You know, he, he goes to bed at, at uh, 9 a.m. just like all of my other kids, but he gets up at 3 a.m. and he's just ready to go. He, he just doesn't seem to need as much sleep. And when he wakes up, he's just fully on. And so that's another very common um, piece to ADHD that we see is the significant difference in sleep, generally requiring less sleep um, and having good restorative sleep, but it, it really disrupts oftentimes the household when the child is waking up very early in the morning. Mm -hmm. So they're on their own schedule for sure. Well, look, I'd like yep. to totally change topics and talk a little bit about some of the geography or lack of access and some of the economics just with mental health and with ADHD, just and kind of the evolution of that. We've talked about the evolution of the diagnosis, but talking a little bit about, you know, it used to be ADHD was quite a stigma. I mean, that was like the kid that was singled out mm -hmm. and there were a handful. Now it's hard to go to a PTA meeting and not talk <laughs> about, um, you know, how many kids in a classroom have been diagnosed or are on these medications or whatever. So we've kind of, as you've mentioned a couple of times, evolved. But um, And I know I'm asking a lot in a question. Let's start with just access. So one thing that really attracted to having me um, bring you on as a guest is that I work a lot in rural areas, as do you, and typically there is not a child psychiatrist in a rural area. So you have uh, created an entire company around providing access to not just ADHD, but just mental health disorders through telemedicine. So let's start with the geography and talk about how you've solved that problem and a little bit about your company and what you're seeing um, in rural settings with ADHD. Yes, I appreciate you bringing that up. You know, I think that um, it's often the rural areas that are the most underserved. And that truly is what got me um, inspired and passionate about pursuing telepsychiatry. Um, and just very briefly, telepsychiatry is... Um, the ability of a clinician to see a patient remotely over live video conferencing. So like Skype, but of course, it's got to be secure for medical purposes. And what that, you know, lets us do is very simply 
um, go to a small town in America and see the children there who might suffer um, from mental health issues without there being a psychiatrist locally available. And, uh, you know, we've all seen in the news that there's a large shortage of uh, mental health specialists and providers, and that's doubly true in rural areas. So um, the fact that we can take our providers and then go to these um, very underserved communities and provide the service is, is just an incredibly gratifying um, purpose that, that we have as Iris Telehealth. And so um, Iris Telehealth is the company that, that I founded really with the goal of providing the best access to care possible in underserved communities. And so it's really been really quite an adventure. Uh, and also, as I said, just extremely rewarding to me to see the impacts that we can have on these communities and, and really just making changes on a, on a whole level that I, I never thought or dreamed that I could and, and just seeing the impact of the communities and the, you know, improving graduation rate, decreasing, you know, substance abuses, uh, decreasing um, recidivism and, 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 uh, and, or kids going into the correctional uh, system on a, on a really a state or a county-wide level has been very cool. That is very cool. So one question I have is I know in telemedicine for me and my company, people ask me all the time about, do you get the same outcomes or are people comfortable in a telehealth setting as opposed to an in-person setting? And we're talking about ADHD today, but I'm thinking that kids in today's generation are glued to a TV set or an iPad or something. So I would think that they would be very comfortable in a telehealth setting. But what are you finding? Yeah, I think that your observation is spot on, Tanya. So uh, a lot of research has been done in terms of effectiveness, acceptability, efficacy of telemedicine. And the good news is, is the research really is quite favorable. In, in terms of showing that, that telemedicine is equivalent to face-to-face care. There have been a number of studies that looked at particular subtypes, whether it is, or subgroups, I should say, whether it's separating it out by age um, or separating it out by diagnosis. You know, there's some concern that, for example, schizophrenia might be a difficult condition to treat via telemedicine. And the data really all shows that telemedicine is quite acceptable for, for treating nearly every uh, age range and every condition. I think that the you know common observation that you made, um, the data also plays out. And then of course you know we we love to talk about data as as doctors, but you know just from our experience, kids have very little difficulties adapting to this style of delivering care. Um, and you know the interesting thing, and I, I think everyone would expect that, but kids are generally good with technology and are not um, too hesitant to change. It's interesting how senior citizens also, uh, very unexpectedly, I think to many people, take very well to telemedicine. The group that actually had the lowest satisfaction or or the lowest acceptability for telemedicine is middle-aged white men, Um, which I guess, you know, in some ways may not be very surprising, but I I really thought it was going to be the elder, the the senior citizens that would have the the That were not raised with, yeah, that were not raised with technology. Yeah. Yeah. But acceptance across the board, across every single age range is over 90%. Yep. So there's only about 10% of people who would say, no, I don't want to do this. I really need to see a doctor in person. Um, and, and to me, that's, that's excellent. And so, you know, we're very happy. And that's what we see. That's what sort of plays itself out across the, across the country in our experience. Okay. And then on the technology side, since we don't have the video with us, we're on radio today. Can you 
just kind of explain the setting. Like if this is when you do a clinical telehealth visit, it's not in the patient's home. Are they going to a clinic or is it in their home or what is the environment? Yeah. So each companies operate differently. The way that we work is we partner with the healthcare systems directly and we see individuals in that clinic setting. So we will go into uh, a rural community and generally partner with the local um, primary care center or mental health clinic and provide services directly out of that clinic. So that gives a, a little bit of extra security and safety, I think, for, for everyone involved. It allows us to make sure that we're able to get vitals if necessary to a physical exam, coordinate care um, better. I think that the dream goal is, of course, seeing patients who are the most comfortable in the home, but it's still difficult to do that um, in some cases for, for a number of reasons. But in, in short, to answer your question, all of our care is delivered in a formal clinic setting, either in a hospital or a, or a clinic. Okay. And I would imagine that the providers in the rural areas especially are pretty favorable. I know I travel. We're speaking to you from Texas. I'm in Georgia today, but um, I see in rural Georgia, behavioral health is one of the number one identified needed um, specialties in a rural area. So I'm guessing that you're finding the partners in those rural areas are pretty favorable as well. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I will give Georgia credit in a number of ways. You all are leading the charge, particularly on the child's mental health care side of things. Um, so I, I give Georgia really a lot of credit for. Uh, taking the technology and seeing how can we best use this to help improve mental health care, especially among kids. Texas is is fine. We actually just passed some good favorable you new did. laws. But, you did. You uh, did last week. Here, but we're, that's right. But, but George has really led the charge in a number of ways, particularly around school-based mental health. Yeah. So just to clarify for the listeners out there, what we're talking about is in the state of Texas, there was a legal battle and a requirement in telemedicine that you could not be paid or have an encounter without first having a in-person visit, which kind of defeats the whole mm-hmm. purpose. So mm-hmm. um, it was, I think, signed into law last week, was it not, that that was dropped as a requirement? Correct. And yes. I, don't, I know that it got put forward. I, I'm not sure if it got signed or not, yeah. but... You know, I, I think that progress. this week or last week or next week, well, big progress we're, we're doing Texas. things. That's, that's always <laughs> that's a good, good sign. Okay, I'd like to back up a little bit and talk about the, um, we talked about the evolution of ADHD. And, you know, like I said, years ago, it used to be that there was a big stigma kind of associated with this. But is this kind of changing? Has there been increased awareness? And um, what are you kind of seeing out there in terms of people getting care appropriately? So I think the good news is that the stigma is changing. Uh, the stigma is lessening for mental health. That being said, I, I do not want to celebrate an early victory. Um, stigma is still very much alive and well, uh, especially where we serve in rural America. And so I, I think that you know some areas are, are much more understanding and progressive in terms of um, having a positive uh, and accepting view of mental health. Um, as something that is not, you know, a, a, a soul deficit in an individual. Right. Um, but, but there still exists significant stigma. And, you know, we see it. I mean, we, you know, it's, it's, an, it's just the reality that there is still significant stigma 
um, especially in rural areas. But it is better. And I think that, you know, a, a lot of this education that is being done um, is, is probably the main reason for that, just sort of spreading outreach and education um, and having people talking. You know, I, I think that people feel very alone. And I think that that is ultimately at the core of stigma is that people feel isolated and, and you know, it's this whole us versus them type of dichotomy. And I think that the more people speak, they realize that it hits close to home. Um, you know, I, I, I would challenge anyone to find, you know, a, an individual who doesn't know someone close to them, family or friends that in some way has been affected by significant mental illness. Yeah, I would agree with that. So progress and heading in the right direction and keep on the course is the message there. Yeah. Okay, well, let's That's move. Right. We've talked a lot about the diagnosis and what kind of shows up as far as symptoms. Now let's get to the positive part and treatment. So can you generally first go over what are just some general options and kind of how you look at um, what you'll do once a diagnosis is made? Sure. Also take a step back and say that usually by the time uh, a kiddo has gotten to me or to a child psychiatrist, it's not the first conversation that's been had about ADHD. Mm -hmm. Oftentimes, they've spoken with the school about it. They've spoken with their primary care doctor about it. They've spoken with a school counselor about it. There may have been a school meeting about it. So oftentimes, they are coming to me saying, these are the things that we have tried. This is what has worked. This is what has not worked. Um, and so just to kind of give a, a context of that, I always go over all of the ways that we can try and improve uh, the functioning of an ADHD child. Um, one of which is medications, but of course, there are many other um, treatment modalities. And I think that, that the more um, of a, a multi-pronged approach we take to treatment, really of anything, um, the more likely we are to be successful. So, you know, the first thing that we talk about is is environmental types of changes or modifications, which can be a, a very powerful tool and changing the function of a kid with ADHD. And, you know, the very common things, right? Having the kid <clears throat> sit up closer to the teacher, providing things like fidgets for the child, providing um, a space that may be uh, less sort of um, stimulating or less sort of distracting for them during testing. <clears throat> a, a number of different interventions that can be done in the school that can really help the, the kid adapt better to what's going on. There's lots of different learning aids for children with ADHD who, that try and keep their attention focused. Um, so whether it's, you know, um, highlighting while they read or, or oftentimes there's just a, a, a sheet of paper that has, you know, a rectangle cut out of it so they can only focus on one line at a time. There's a, there's a number of different behavioral modification techniques that can be done. Um, a lot of education. Just getting the kid to understand what's happening as, as things play out, have them begin to recognize, hey, I'm getting distracted, I need to refocus. So there's a lot of education that goes along with it. There's a lot of behavioral modification that goes along with it. Having the, the school understand oftentimes, you know, usually teachers get it, but not always. And so sometimes there's some education that has to go on in the school as well and, and how um, this kid is not trying to make the teacher's life misery. It's just that they struggle um, with being impulsive at times or, or they need um, kind of constant uh, direction in what to be doing. So those are the, the common first approaches that we would make to ADHD. Um, there's formal therapies based around helping kids with ADHD. Um, and so that's sort of the first approach. The second is 
just general life types of changes in terms of getting routines down for the kid. Routine can be very critical for, for kids with ADHD. Um, you know, there's a lot of talk around diet. There's a lot of studies around diet and nothing is really, you know, very conclusive in, in some ways. But, you know, there's a lot of parents that have questions about that and we want to guide them along um, the path. You know, let's talk about the sugar affect ADHD. So I think that we talk about healthy, healthy eating, that sort of thing. Um, and then, of course, medicine is, is primarily the reason that the child has ultimately made it to the point of seeing a child psychiatrist is oftentimes many things have been tried and it's a question of, is it appropriate to use medications to help this child's functioning? So it seems to me like medications um, back what, 20, 30 years ago when my son was going through this was very controversial, you know, especially in schools to medicate or not medicate. And there's a lot of talk. Um, I know East Cobb here, CW in our Georgia, is one of the largest prescribers of ADHD medicines. Mm. So um, I'm interested to see you know, kind of the evolution of the medication? And is it still controversial? Or like what percent of kids do get treatment with medication versus not? Can you just kind of update us on the environment? Sure. Yeah. yeah. So I think that on the clinician side, treatment's not that controversial. Mm-hmm. I, I think that there is a lot of data supporting treatment with medicines. And, you know, if I had to pick the two or three um conditions that we treat as psychiatrists that respond well to medications, ADHD would certainly make that list. The mm-hmm. treatments that we have, um, unlike many of our treatments where the you know, efficacy rates may only be 40, 50, 60%, and even then it takes months, um, you know, with ADHD, we can really approach 85 to 90% response rates. And the treatment response time is literally often minutes or days, uh, kind of depending on the medicine. So I think in the field, you know, there's not a lot of controversy around whether um, medications for ADHD work and, and should be used. I think the controversy lies around, you know, making sure that we're not using medications and medications alone, that we're not um, failing to address social issues uh, or parenting issues or school difficulties that are maybe contributing or worsening symptoms of ADHD. So I think that that's kind of where the conversation you know, generally exists in the field is, are we doing enough beyond medicines to kind of help uh, with this? I think that, you know, we talk about stigma. I I think the stigma is still, you know, there um, where kids, uh, parents are hesitant to put their kids on ADHD. Some of them feel guilty, actually. They feel like because there's been so much of a push, um, kind of this pendulum swing the other way, they're bad parents if they have to put their kid on a medicine because it means that they're too lazy to to parent them. And so, you know, there's a lot of education that happens there. Um, to answer the question again, I think it's getting better. I think parents are becoming uh, more comfortable with the idea of weighing the pros and cons and doing what is best for their child while kind of trying to push away that stigma that, that lies behind it, really just trying to think for the best interests of the child. But we see it, you know, oftentimes parents, come in and, and they even know it. They, they know their kids would likely benefit. And you can see that internal struggle that they have with themselves that, you know, no, I just don't want to, uh, you know, medicate my kid oftentimes. And you know, the most common question that I get asked once I've developed a rapport is, you know, I just don't want to try my kid into a zombie. I think that that's just a very common concern. Parents are afraid that medications are going to sedate or take away the personality of their child. And what would the children that are taking these medications, what do you hear from them? I mean, in general, do they... Um, feel like they are more helpful than not, or do would they themselves say 
it makes me more zombie-like. I mean, I know my son, when he was going through this, even some of his contemporaries, um, the parents might have thought they were taking the medication, but they would spit it out or not take it. So mm-hmm. I'm interested in hearing also from the child's perspective what what they might say or what do they say. Yeah, I'm always very interested in what, what the child has to say. And in fact, that's usually, to me, what, you know, the three uh, pieces of information that are most important in terms of determining whether treatment is being effective and should be continued is the parent's opinion, the teacher's opinion, and then really the child's opinion is incredibly important. Um, it really can vary. Uh, you know, uh, I would say more often than not, if we are having open communications with a child and dosing the medication appropriately, the kid is understanding that the medicine is very helpful to them. I think the biggest, the, 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 a couple of reasons kids often don't like the medicine. Um, uh, oftentimes, stimulants can decrease appetite and can decrease weight. And I will have kids that really don't like that. They, they really, I think they're afraid that they're going to be small um, or, or not develop appropriately. Um, and they, they get concerns about that, that they're not eating. Um, and there is a reality to the fact that if you overdose these medicines, it can make a kid feel sedated or lethargic or, you know, quote unquote, like a zombie. In which case, you know, that's the clinician's job to listen and to respond by adjusting the medications appropriately. So I think that having the kid involved as an advocate for themselves um, can kind of help you prevent the fact that, you know, kids kids are autonomous little creatures. You know, if if, if you tell them to do something and they really don't want to do it, they're they're much smarter than mom and dad. They can mm-hmm. usually I agree find with a way that. to get around it. So, yeah, I mean, if a kid tells me I'm not going to take the medicine, you know, I take that pretty seriously because uh, I know mom and dad might say, oh, yes, you are. But at the end of the day, I know who wins that argument. So it's really important for me to understand why the kid says they're not going to take the medicine and then make an adjustment if appropriate to, to get them on board, to, to mm-hmm. sort of understand what their concerns are and address them. Yeah, I think it's important, too, because I've, I've heard of children selectively take the medicine. Like, I've, I've had kids in my home that um, will say, oh, I'm not taking it every day, but if I have a big test, I might take I might take it then if I have a big test. Like, I really need to focus. I've heard that same thing. So they know, you know, they know a little bit, they're kind of getting it, but yeah, I was wondering about the consistency, you know, taking the medication consistently versus sporadically. Can really be clinically appropriate to take the medicine sporadically. Usually for school-age kids, we I recommend that they take it at least during school days regularly. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think that generally what we find is, is that kids are going to perform better if they truly need the medicine. They're going to likely need it every school day. I think as a child gets older and they learn a little bit more about themselves and about their own personalities, they have a wider repertoire of coping skills so they can generally oftentimes manage without the medicines um, and may only need it when they're under kind of more um, extreme pressures to study, like around the test. Um, but then it starts potentially blurring the lines in, 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 as, in terms of, you know, is this really something that is being used as an enhancement versus helping a child with, with something that they struggle with? And, and that's, that's another kind of difficult question that I think um, oftentimes clinicians deal with uh, because, again, ADHD is not dichotomous. It's not black and white. It's a spectrum of severity. Um, you know, where do you where do you draw the line where medications mm-hmm. are appropriate? Mm-hmm. Um, but, but certainly, I, I have lots of kids who take the medicine five days a week mm-hmm. and who, who go on a vacation, a med vacation over the summer. That mm-hmm. is not uncommon at all. That's interesting. So really, you know, personalized. We talk a lot about personalized medicine, and this is no different. 
I want to change the topic a little bit because I'm curious about, um, we see the road often beginning, you know, with younger school-aged children. You mentioned that you're seeing more and more that it's not uncommon to see high schoolers with a first diagnosis, but what happens with the ADH child that starts more in the elementary school and as they grow, or even high schoolers, and then as they grow into adulthood, what do we see with ADHD? Does it stay the same? Do they kind of grow out of it? What happens? Yeah, it's a really uh, interesting question. So, and you had mentioned earlier that uh, males are three times more likely to have the diagnosis as females. And I I think that there probably is some genetic component to that. But beyond that, I think there's also a, a social component. So, and the reason I, I mentioned that is I think that this is what often changes over the lifespan is that the hyperactivity is generally what brings kids into treatment. Um, you know, Tommy's just tearing up the place. He can't stop. He's running up the walls, et cetera. Hyperactivity is something that, regardless of whether you have a diagnosis of ADHD or not, your ability to control your motor impulses, your movement impulses, improves as you go on to adulthood. Um, right? All of us, hopefully, as uh, fairly well-developed adults, are able to control our behaviors much better than we could when we were three or five years old. So we see the same thing with kids with ADHD, that you know they oftentimes do still have more motor activity than uh, you know, age-matched adults without ADHD, um, but it's not becoming clinically significant because they have developed coping skills to manage those hyperactive behaviors. So what we generally see is hyperactivity really decreases over time as people become adults, and rarely do they have hyperactive symptoms that cause difficulties. What we uh, unfortunately do not see is the same level of improvement in um, inattentive symptoms. Uh, so impulsivity also improves, right? We all know teenagers, you know, kind of at the peak of impulsivity as we get older, um, we get more mature, we develop more coping skills to uh, decrease our impulsivity. So again, adults with ADHD often have more impulsivity than, um, you know, adults without ADHD, um, but we can see that difference. The, the big factor that sort of remains later in life is that inattentive symptom. So if... Uh, uh, a person with ADHD as an adult goes on to, to work a job that requires extreme focused attention, like accounting, for example, um, it is very unlikely that they'll be able to perform that job function incredibly well without um, even staying on medicine. Now, I think what happens is these kids often self-select what, what careers they have. They will pick careers that do not require high levels of detail-oriented types of work, so often go into more creative fields. So as opposed to accounting, they might go into advertising or marketing, um, or they may go into things that allow them to work with their hands, uh, which, again, is something that allows them to kind of keep their focus in a way that works for them. So, you know, in, in summary, yes, we see the intent, I'm sorry, we see the hyperactivity symptoms generally diminish over time. We see the impulsivity diminish over time. But it's that uh, inattention that often remains. And, and often they struggle with as adults. They just have a harder time staying focused on things. Yeah, I agree with that. So really thinking about if, if you are parents or, or uh, a person with ADHD, um, getting really aware about how you do and what might work for you. I know I have a friend that his entire counseling practice is lawyers that pick lawyering and have to read all day long. <laughs> but they have ADHD and he has a whole practice and that's all he sees. So that's interesting. it's interesting that you, you bring up self-selection and just kind of being aware that 
the inattention is the one thing that maybe carries over. Um, I want to go back. You mentioned a couple of places in our discussion so far about teens in particular with ADHD. And I'm wondering, you know, are there any things unique to them? You mentioned substance abuse and the impulsivity. I'm also interested in like teen pregnancy or anything unique, prevalence of gaming, helpful or hurtful, just kind of anything that's unique to the teen with ADHD. Yeah, I don't know if I would use the term unique. Um, I, I think that we do see differences. So I think that impulsive behavior is higher in, in teenagers with ADHD. And so the sorts of behaviors that we see with impulsivity, um, whether that be um, sexual behavior or risk-taking behavior, um, or, you know, whether that is around how they drive their car or whether they're going to, you know, choose to drink or smoke um, or experiment, we do see an increase in those behaviors. Now, again, I mean, this is a statistical increase. It is certainly not unique. Uh, there are plenty of teenagers, as we all know, um, who do impulsive things um, and can be much more impulsive than, than a child with ADHD. But certainly statistically, we see that children with ADHD do have more impulsive risk-taking behaviors, um, which leads to things like um, substance abuse or teen pregnancy. Um, but there's, you know, there's no way you're going to see a kid, you know, 14-year-old smoking behind the school and, you know, assume he has ADHD. Right. Um, so it's really a statistical type of finding. Okay. Well, we're almost to the end of our time together, but I wanted to talk about two things. Um, you mentioned Georgia specifically um, using telemedicine in the school system. And um, recently here in Georgia, we um, have a new initiative. I don't know if you knew this, CW2, pump in over the next three years telemedicine capability in every elementary school in Georgia, mm. which will include the ability to do behavior health. So are you seeing this kind of as a trend, school and telemedicine and behavior health together? Because I know you're na- you have a national perspective. Yes, absolutely. And I, I think that it makes sense to give care where a kid is most comfortable, where it's least disruptive to their life sort of a big thing in childhood development is we don't want to disrupt what's typical for a kid. And so having them, you know, stay in school as opposed to get pulled out of school regularly um, is ultimately, I believe, better treatment for the kid. Um, if you ask anybody who's done telemedicine in the schools, they will tell you that it has now got its difficulties. You know, it, it's still something where healthcare being done in the school system is not a, a, a completely new thing. I mean, there's been nurses mm-hmm. in schools forever. But kind of this integration of medical records and logistics, it does, it is a, a problem, but I think it's a problem that technology can really help with. I think it is a trend that we're going to continue seeing. I do not think that, um, you know, uh, I think it's an excellent utilization of uh, telemedicine to provide those services in schools. I've done it personally. People take very well to it. I think it increases communication among everyone, teachers, clinicians, and um, parents, which is very critical. So I, I think that it is a wonderful initiative that Georgia is taking. I know that I've spoken with a lot of folks there. They're really paving the way and they're solving some of these problems that are going to make it easier, I think, for the, the next adopters to do it, to do a program like this successfully. Yeah, I know another big step forward that we've taken in Georgia recently is within, uh, I think, I think back into the spring, Georgia now has schools as a reimbursable location for Medicaid. So when we talk about rural, the need in rural areas being significantly great, 
Um, and we talk about a lot of those families and patients are Medicaid um, recipients, mm. then getting coverage for that inside of a school setting. So it really, that step forward really enables us in Georgia to have the school directly bill Medicaid, um, which in the past you've had the providers bill. Mm. Um, so it, it's not that one way or the other is good. It just, it kind of creates an open door for more schools to um, feel like they will have some skin in the game and they will take a look at reimbursement. So that's a big thing that we're doing here in Georgia. Well, before we leave you, uh, Dr. Shaheen, I would like to ask you one last question. That's about, is there anything new in your field or new research or anything that we've not talked about that you're excited about with ADHD? Wow, big, big question. So I, I am very excited in general with the direction that psychiatry is taking in terms of going back to first principles. And this is something that Elon Musk talks a lot about um, in terms of if you really want to make a, a, a groundbreaking discovery, oftentimes you have to start from the beginning. You know, I, I, I think history is very important, but I think that if we just accept all of the assumptions that we've made previously, we make incremental improvements, if we're willing to go back and kind of quote-unquote start from scratch, we're often able to come to new conclusions or understandings that are fundamentally um, able to shift the, the way that we're able to address a problem. And I think that psychiatry has made a very conscious choice, uh, really beginning in the NINH, to say, we're going to go back and try and start with kind of bringing our conversation to the beginning, how we even look at creating diagnostic categories. And we're going we're gonna to go back and say, can we get deeper than superficial symptoms in, in the ways that we try and look at these illnesses? And so I, I think that's what I am most excited about. I think that it's something that is not going to bear fruit for a bit of time, but I think that it is very necessary for us to kind of make the next quantum leap in psychiatry. And, you know, I, I think that as we've seen, psychiatry had a huge breakthrough. You know, they've really had a couple of huge breakthroughs. Um, you know, in the 60s with the initial batch of neuroleptics, and again, in the 80s when we had these more tolerant medicines. But really since then, uh, since the late 80s, early 90s, we have not had any, and, and I don't want to get in trouble for saying this, we've, we've come up with some things that are okay, but nothing that's fundamentally changed the way that psychiatry is practiced. And I'm, I'm very hopeful that in my career, my lifetime as a psychiatrist, I will see at least one of those quantum changes, and I think it's going to come to a better understanding of the etiology or the actual root cause of what's going on with some of these illness, and getting back to what you said, individualized, personalized medicine, because mm -hmm. then I think we can really target much more specifically. So I think that's not specific about ADHD, mm -hmm. I and mean, ADHD is one of those areas. I think that's what I'm most kind of hopeful and excited for um, in my field in the next 25 to 30 years. Yeah, I think a couple of drivers to that is it's a lot easier to get education in a digital age then just wait until it appears at your door. You can search. Everything is very searchable, and people are just learning through videos and lots of different channels they're learning. I think in medicine, too, one trend that we see in our practice is um, a lot more people paying attention to, both on the patient side and the provider side, to the mind-body connection, that they're not just separate physical, but just our mental health and how our mind works and how it all works together is a lot more accepted than I think traditional training for, you know, clinicians in the past. So probably a lot of factors keeping the train moving in a more positive direction than we maybe have been. 
I know one of the emerging areas of research that's showing a measure of promise as it relates to behavioral medicine and ADHD being one of the ones that they're looking at is the analysis of voice samples to be able to either predict or determine uh, the presence of certain illnesses and ADHD is one of those that they're looking at. And it's surprising what they're able to accomplish and the accuracy with which they're able to do it using a sample of your voice. Yeah. Boy, the speed of change for what we're learning is really kind of incredible. Yeah, don't don't go asleep at the wheel. Things change. Well, I want to thank you, Dr. Shaheen, for joining us today. I want to remind everybody, please visit your website, www.iristelehealth.com, and also remind all the listeners that although uh, Dr. Shaheen's been very generous with us today, focusing on ADHD, um, you actually provide a broad spectrum of care um, in the behavioral health and mental health um, world, not just ADHD, correct? Yes, ma'am. I really appreciate your your time, Tanya, and thank you for the opportunity. Yeah, very good. And if if our listeners have any um, questions or want to follow up, is there a phone number? Where would you direct them to? Anywhere else? Yeah, so I'm very accessible. Um, and I think the website's probably the easiest place to get information on us. And my my email is available on the website. It's just my name, farsatshaheenatirishtelehealth.com. I love it when people reach out to me. I think that it's all about kind of getting people together with a, a unified voice to, to try and make make the changes that we need to see in mental health care. Very good. Well, thank you so much for being with us today. We've really appreciated a lot of information on this topic mm-hmm. and your time. And CW, we were lucky today from Texas to have um, a physician that's working nationally and also in telemedicine doing very forward-thinking type care, I think. so. Yep, very pleased to have you here, Dr. Shaheen. I appreciate you making time for sure. If you've not done so already, get over to womenstelehealth.com, learn about the high-risk maternal-fetal specialty care that they're providing using the same sort of telehealth technology, both for rural facilities and physician practices, as well as in the urban centers. Um, They're providing a high level of professional care for those mothers that are in high-risk pregnancies and saving outcomes and the system healthcare dollars for sure. Uh, If you've not done so already, go to the uh, upper left-hand corner of the show page. The Apple logo will take you to the Top Docs Radio Show podcast and subscribe to us. That way, each week when the new episode comes out, it'll download straight to your device and you can check it out whenever it's convenient for you. And obviously, this topic is one that affects many, many people. Both of us sitting in this room uh, have had family members uh, that were dealing with some measure of ADHD, and, and I'm sure that's true for you as well. So turn around and click share. Put it out on social media. Share it on LinkedIn and Facebook and others. Uh, you might just be putting information in the hands of somebody that makes a big difference for them. So we'll say thanks in advance to everybody that does that for us. Tanya, it's always great, man. You bring Time the, flies. You bring great Time, guests. Yes, yes. Dr. Shaheen, thank you so much. And um, we'll see you all next time. Catch you then.